I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Logan Levkoff, author and sexuality and relationship educator. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about challenging abstinence-only education. It's estimated that half of all new STD cases occur in young people aged 5 to 15 to 24, and the respective group has five times the reported rate of chlamydia of the total population, four times the rate of gonorrhea, and three times the rate of syphilis. Yet, instead of giving young people the information they need, only 17 states require that schools provide medically accurate sex sex education. Dr. Levkoff encourages honest conversation about sexuality and the role it plays in our culture. She makes it clear that sex and sexuality are not dirty words. She works to create an environment where people feel comfortable asking and also getting answers to their most personal questions. She's frequently She frequently appears on the... Good Morning America, The Today Show, Rachel Ray, Oprah, CNN, and many more, and also blogs for the Huff for Huff Post. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Um, Thank Dr. you for Logan having Lefka. me. Good to have you. Okay. That was a long introduction. <laughs> Good to be here. <laughs> so, first question. Uh, why, after all this time and all these statistics that I just quoted, why are we, why do we still, like, persist in remaining in the dark when it comes to sex, sexuality, and communication? Let's start with that one. Well, I mean, if only I had an answer that would make sense, because you're right, it it does not make sense. Uh, You know, the the numbers are really staggering. And and I I just want to say, you know, sometimes when we hear that those numbers disproportionately impact young people, it makes it sound like young people are so irresponsible. And the truth is, they're not. And they make great decisions when they're given the tools to make good decisions and access to screening and, and condoms and education and, you know, health care. Uh, without stigma or shame. But the problem is we don't do that. Um, you know, some of us do that, but, but culturally across the country, young people are getting really detestable sex ed. Um, oftentimes parents don't even know that their kids are getting such bad sex ed or none at all. And, and we see it play out in, in these really sad and totally preventable ways. So Mike, so, and absolutely, I know in, um, one of my a niece who is a social worker in Texas who does who, sex who is doing sex education was and came from uh, Boston was appalled at the information the information <laughs> that they that it is actually not factual not true not scientific and yet this is the, the sex education in this particular place where she is uh that's the information these kids are getting so i mean we don't right have and i, I yeah, yeah i'm sorry i i was going to just say i i think that people often don't recognize that bad sex ed isn't just having like the gym teacher the you know the gym teacher yeah. trope who really doesn't have a lot of facts the the kind of bad sex ed that our young people are getting are the kind that is steeped in shame, totally heterosexist, and basically suggests to any queer young people that they're not entitled to be or exist as they are and that, you know, their lives will suffer because of it. It gives factually in, I'm sorry, inaccurate information about 
how products work and the things they can do to take care of themselves and make smart decisions. And all of these things, of course, jeopardize consent. And, and the underlying message for all of this is super gendered and, and basically tells people, particularly girls, um, that if they ever have any sexual experience prior to marriage, because marriage is that magical time in which, you know, apparently everything is okay, um, if they do, they are like dirty and used pieces of gum, even if that sexual encounter was a non-consensual one. So it's super damaging for all people. So we're still into, we are, that's the hell and damnation, um, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're going to go to hell if you have sex before marriage. So what do we do, though? Because you've got those, we have to change those attitudes, right? I mean, the information, we have the information. It's not as if we don't have the information. I think, but in, in order to execute it, get it out there, what do we do? How do we do that? I mean, yeah. Well, bringing attention to the issue and, and getting parents and caregivers and adults who work with young people involved and informed about what young people are actually getting is really important because oftentimes, you know, parents and I mean, I have a, a teenager and a an, an 10-year-old and oftentimes if we, you know, get the information from school, it says they're having sex and we make certain assumptions about what that sex program is. I mean, and Admittedly, not if you're me, because I do this for a living, so I ask more questions, I'm sure, than anyone else wants to hear. But most parents just say, oh, okay, they're doing something. And don't really follow up with questions in terms of who's doing it, how are they trained, if they are trained, what's the agenda, what's the goal of the program, you know, is there an underlying political philosophy or not. Um, so we, we have to draw attention to that, and, and we have to start supporting uh, comprehensive sex ed and, and start recognizing that our young people are absolutely capable and thoughtful um, and far more flexible in terms of how they look at gender and sexuality than adults are, and that they are more than capable of hearing this information. I mean, sexuality education is certainly more than just acts of sex. It's everything from assigned sex and gender identity to body image and expression and puberty and consent, and then, of course, all the sexual health decision-making. But it is really hard to become a fully functioning, healthy adult if you don't get those tools when you're a young person. If you don't have good information or the right information, you can't make good choices. So, I mean, if you, sure. right? Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and those those choices have some pretty significant, you know, health implications down the line, both for emotional and physical health. So, you know, if, if we don't know that we have the right to, to say yes or to no to something, right, it jeopardizes our ability to consent and it jeopardizes our ability to speak up and advocate for ourselves in our relationships, not just when we're young, but as we get older, if we haven't yet developed that skill set. And the other piece of it is that, you know, if someone has a sexually transmitted infection or is exposed to one and, and doesn't feel safe to go get tested or go get treated by a medical provider, some of those STIs have long-term implications. I mean, look, chlamydia is the leading cause of preventable um, infertility. And, you know, we don't think about that, right, because we're, we're, people are concerned with not getting pregnant when they're young. But, you know, certain decisions, you know, if you, if you don't teach young people how to have smart, protected sex, um, you know, it does impact reproductive health later on, too. How do you fight those uh, parents or committees or 
politicians <laughs> who say that if you talk about sex and you talk, give these kids information about contraceptives, then they're only going, it gives them permission to have sex. <laughs> oh, I love when they say that. <laughs> you know, I, I have been uh, I have been in this field as a sexuality educator, working with young young people, kids, teens, college students, up through my 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 oldest students have been ninety four years old. Um, and one of the things that I I am certain of is that never in any of these years um, and beyond and before that has there ever been any evidence to suggest that talking about sex or talking about contraceptives hastens the onset of, of sexual intercourse or sex acts of any kind. Um, all of the scientific research has always said that it doesn't, it doesn't enhance it or speed it up. What it does is for those who are already sexually active, it encourages them to use the necessary precautions, take the necessary precautions to make sure they're, um, their decisions are safer. So, you know, people don't always like science because science doesn't always support their beliefs. And it's okay to have values. And it's okay to say, you know, I would rather my young person not have any type of sex until this magical age. That's, that's fine. That's a personal value. But as, as responsible adults helping to raise another generation of young people, you know, we still need to provide facts. Um, and we can't lie to them. And, and the minute we lie to them, then we lose the opportunity to, for, for them ever to have an ongoing conversation with us. Uh, the other side of that, I guess, maybe the 180 from that is I think that the, there's a rise. Uh, this is kind of another topic, maybe, but there's a rise in sexually transmitted diseases in seniors. And in, in, yep. in, yeah, so. Yes. And, and it all comes from the same thing. You know, it, it comes from a culture that says there is a magic time in which it is OK to be a sexually active person. And if you fall outside of that category, right, we don't talk about it. We make you feel badly. We don't give you access to the services and tools that you need. And the truth is, whether you are a, a younger person or a part of a, a more aging population, you deserve and you are entitled to all the same facts about how to make smart, sexually healthy decisions as anyone else. Um, but part of those numbers, those rising rates in older populations, too, from, come from guilt and shame and not having, you know, not having education that is based in, you know, 2019 standards as opposed to what it was when, you know, when people were younger. How do we compare to, I'm going to say, Europeans or countries, or are there countries where they do provide good sex education? And how do our statistics is pretty much the, the, the gold standard? Um, you know, the, the United States really has, um, and I, I say this, you know, <laughs> um, very seriously, has the most detestable sexual health of any industrialized nation. Um, and, and it's interesting because we have all the resources to suggest that we shouldn't be. Um, and while our, you know, our teen pregnancy rates have gone down and they are, you know, as low as they've ever been in a long time, they're still higher than every other developed country. Um, so there's that. And of course, our STI rates just keep rising. I started in this field when I was 15 years old as a peer HIV and AIDS educator, um, I mean, and I would have never imagined after, you know, now that it's been almost 30 years, um, 
it, it horrifies me that something that we know is so easy to prevent and we can empower people of all ages to know that they're making good, smart, informed decisions that rates, even of HIV, are rising in, in certain populations. It, these are... These are issues that, that our young people, and, and quite frankly, not just our, our young people, people across their entire lifespan really do deserve better. So we're really doing it more than a disservice. So we're sexualizing all, you know, say, young girls, uh, they, whether it's clothes or, or makeup or, you know, it's a huge business at one, on one side. And then the other side, we give them no information about their own body, sexuality. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Right. Which, which creates a pretty atrocious uh, sexual health problem. Um, and I think that the one, an issue that as a, as a, as a sexuality educator who, who spends really a, every day of my life working with children and teens, I think that we, we tend to forget that the hallmark of adolescence is sexuality, is figuring out who you are, identifying who you are and how you would like to express that to the world and figuring out how to navigate connections between people. And that doesn't mean that all teens can be, should be, will be sexually active in some way. But that entire time of puberty and adolescent development is figuring out who you are and how you want to express yourself in, in this world. And the idea that we, you know, say it's okay under certain conditions for some people, but also, you know, if we give you all these things to make yourself look a certain way, we're going to judge you anyway, right? We're going to throw all the old traditional double standards back at you, uh, and we're not going to give you the tools to make good decisions. Um, it is a pretty ugly model that we're creating, uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. It would be really easy to change it. So when do, when do, when do we start? Because the questions, your kids, the kids ask questions way before puberty. They started oh, yeah, three, for sure. four years old. Well, you know, where do babies come from? So how yeah. do we kind of move up the ladder? Where do we start and how do we start? We, so I, every time I'm asked this question, I give the same answer and I could just imagine what half the listeners are thinking when I say it. But sex ed really does begin at birth. And, you know, and I, and I say that because we, t again, we tend to think that when we use the word sex, we're talking about explicit acts of sex. Um, and that's just not the case. So even when kids are babies, right, I mean, when they're figuring out what their bodies look like and how they feel, we should be using correct terms for body parts. We should be giving our kids lots of different toys and not pigeonholing them into certain things because it, it you know, perpetuates some gender standard that we have that may or may not reflect, you know, what our kid like. Forget identity, you know, just what our kid might like to look like or do or play with. Um, when we talk about different kind of families and why some of our friends have two moms or two dads or a single parent or step parents, that's talking about sexuality. And the more that we do that from an early age, it's not just that we're giving our kids the, the tools in which to, to see and evaluate the world around them, but we're also sending them a daily message that we as parents and as caregivers and as grandparents and aunts and uncles, we are people here and willing to talk to you and have honest conversations with you. Um, and that is the, the most important message because young people just want to know that someone they love unconditionally and trust unconditionally is going to be there to answer all the tough questions that they have. Yeah, and I think today one of the, they can they they want to come to their parents or caregivers or who or from whomever for information, and they can also validate that now on the their on on the net. And if it doesn't 
match, then you have a problem. So, you know, I yeah. think that, yeah, they have, so that's a good thing. But yes, sexuality begins at, uh, you know, I have a grandson. I mean, we talk about penises and vaginas and two moms and two dads, and I get him the books, and it starts very, very young. You know, and it should, I mean, and the truth yeah. is it should, because when it does, then there's no taboo and shame about bodies. You know, for, for me, I, 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 try, I tell people that I really bristle every time I hear the word private parts, just as an yeah. example, because, you know, I, I get why we do it, right? We say it because not every person has, you know, we don't necessarily have universal language for body parts, even though we should, you know, we, we, you know, it's, it's a context um, issue, you know, if we're like, talking at a if we're in a public place and someone says something we say you know those are our private parts like as if we're not supposed to talk about them but the challenge becomes when you hear that certain body parts and certain things are private 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 then by the time it's really important to be talking about these things and how they're changing and how they feel and and you know how to identify if something is right or not so right for your body then all of a sudden private becomes synonymous with secretive for young people and that means they don't feel comfortable coming forward whether that's you know that something is good or even when something is bad or non-consensual and that's the part that i think people really forget that if we don't give young people the language and the confidence to talk about their bodies if God forbid something happens, they cannot, they, they won't have the tools or confidence to come to us. Yeah. Uh, I think that's an excellent point. I remember with one of my boys, they, it was, we talked about this a little earlier. They were having sex ed and in, it was, I think it was, it was in uh, grade school and you had to sign a consent form and whether they could take the class. So I said, fine, they can mm-hmm. take the class. And, but when they came home, I'd asked them, you know, what, and I probably, I didn't investigate who was teaching the class or exactly. I didn't really get into that. But when they came home, I asked them the question, what did you learn? And, and, and they would tell me. And, and I remember one of the things, and I hope they still don't, but they probably do. They would say, well, we learned that no one can touch you under any place that's under your bathing suit. And I remember saying, well, that's kind of, <laughs> General, what are you talking about? I mean, what was specific? <laughs> right. Was there any specific? You know, um, not really. It was like uh, that's private. So that's the kind of sort of generalized nonsense, I guess you would call it. it, it that was the sex education, of course. I um, added to it, but the, the, and I think they're, <laughs> they're still doing that. Yeah. They, a, a lot, I mean, a lot of people still do. I mean, I, I find language to be incredibly empowering. And I think when you give young people the tools to know words like penis, vulva, vagina, testicles, uterus, right? Like every yeah. time a, a kid walks around and says, you know, my parent, my friend has a baby in their stomach, I, I cringe, you know, because in my classes we say, look, you know, it may look like that, but digestion actually happens in stomachs. Like pregnancies yeah. <laughs> do not occur in stomachs. Like that's not, that's not a thing. Um, and think of how just how that's such a simple, I mean, that's not, that's not laden with any values. Those are just really basic medical facts. Anatomy. That's and anatomy. And people who are afraid of that, too. <laughs> yeah. That's basic anatomy, biology. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And, and that, I hear, you do hear that all the time. 
And uh, yeah, and, and imagine yeah. what happens even for, for all of us, right? And and we see this play out a lot with people who are you know assigned female or identify as female in some way that you know when we in particular don't have correct terms for genitals and we don't know that the vulva is outside and that the clitoris is part of it and that the clitoris actually comes from the same tissue that the penis comes from and that bodies are are you know even assigned female bodies have an innate capacity for pleasure and that's not just about reproduction. When we don't hear that message, think of how that translates to our adult lives, right? We think that we have one purpose in life. We don't know how to talk about pleasure. We're uncomfortable talking to doctors and medical providers about fun- sexual function or anything that, like, has nothing to do with your menstrual cycle. Um, and, and that really strains not just how we feel about ourselves, but if we're in a relationship, it puts strains on that, too. So. You know, having a really clear understanding of your body and how amazing it is and that, I mean, yes, there is reproductive potential, but there's also, you know, a a built-in pleasure potential really does have long-term, it could have really long-term positive effects and, and not just, you know, rather than the shame or no conversation whatsoever. And what about pediatricians? What's their responsibility in this? Because I find physicians, even not when they're not, I mean, just physicians in general have difficulty talking about sexuality and sex with <laughs> adults, with, mm-hmm. with, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I think that's a big, that's, I, I, that, that is also an issue. That is a huge issue. Uh, one of the things, I, I do some trainings for, for doctors and med school students, and it's really the next, I mean, it's, it's, there have been some amazing programs that have been going on for a long time, but sex ed is really considered an elective in most medical schools, um, you know, if you even have access to it at all, which is absolutely ridiculous when you think about it, right? Because, yeah. I mean, if, a, if someone who is a urologist, gynecologist, can't talk about, like, sexual function, um, then it's, it's not necessarily like every patient is going to feel comfortable speaking up. And, and for pediatricians, you know, when, when I talk to pediatricians, uh, you know, people who are becoming pediatricians, oftentimes they'll say to me, you know, tell me what's, you know, what in childhood or adolescent sexuality is pathological? And I said, well, okay, first of all, <laughs> the majority of things that young people experience have nothing to do with pathology whatsoever. It's really typical and typical sexual development, and it's really on you as medical providers to understand that. <laughs> and they don't. And that's really scary. So, you know, when we're hoping that our, our medical providers are talking to our young people about their changing bodies in, in their, you know, during their office visits, sometimes they are. And the, some, the ones that do it well do it really well. And then there are other ones who don't. Um, and and that, that is a, a, a true shame. Are there more of you out there doing this kind of work? I mean, because it is important. It is critical. It's critical to our health. Our, it's <laughs> Yes. I mean, that, that's the good news is that the sex ed field has really grown and that there are people from all different backgrounds and identities and races and ethnicities and religions and genders and orientations that, that are doing this work and, and really doing it beautifully. Um, you know, the, the one challenge that sex educators have always had is that as a, as a profession, and I mean, and you can see it play out in politics, that... You know, it's not necessarily one that's universal, universally respected, you know, because there's still so many, many people who say young people don't need to hear anything. Um, and that's, that's 
it's, it's devastating because those of us who are in this space know that when you have a young person in your room, you can see the light switch turn on when they feel good about themselves, when they know that they're not alone, that they're, they are worthy. Um, and it's not just a physical health issue. It is very much a mental health issue, too. We are sexual human beings. <laughs> and that we are. Aren't we? Yes. Yeah. So we, From we birth have to death. From birth to death, exactly, and everything in between. So we have a couple minutes left. Can you give us some uh, links or websites that we can go to for information, obviously, that you've been talking about today, but, you know, uh, more information um, that listeners can yes. go to? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. For more information on, you know, the, the the commitment to challenge sexual risk avoidance, which is the new rebranded version of abstinence only, check out notchewedgum.org. Notchewedgum.org. Okay. What else? And obviously, for more information about me and my work, you can always go to loganlevkoff.com, and it's my name on any of my social media handles. Terrific. And we can also go, you, 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 as I said, I think earlier, you are blogging on HuffPost, uh, right? I, I have written many, <laughs> many <laughs> posts, and I actually have two parenting books out. One is called Got Teens, The Doctor Mom's Guide to Sexuality, Social Media, and Other Adolescent Realities that I wrote with my friend, uh, Dr. Jennifer Wider, and another book called Third Base Ain't What It Used to Be. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great titles. Um, Thank thanks you. so much for being on. Yes, um, great having you on the show today. We got lots of good information. You can continue to update us. And um, our topic today was challenging abstinence-only education with Dr. Logan Lefkoff. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 